Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, this is Closer Look for this Monday. Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Now, coming up on today's program, we begin our one-on-one conversations with candidates vying to become Atlanta's next city council president. First up, he's a political newcomer, but former CEO of the Woodruff Arts Center and the National Center for Civil and Human Rights. Doug Shipman joins me in just a moment. Also, if you're thinking about purchasing holiday gifts, you may want to order them now, like today, because the global supply chain is a mess. John Haber with Spend Management Experts joins me with the latest. That's all on today's Closer Look. But first this, some news regarding COVID-19 vaccines for young children. Pfizer and BioNTech announcing this morning that the vaccine is safe and effective in children ages 5 to 11. Now, Dr. Evan Anderson is an associate professor of medicine at Emory School of Medicine, as well as an associate professor of pediatrics and was the study site principal investigator for this trial. Now, he says, yes, while Pfizer's results are good news, news, Dr. Anderson has given caution as to when the vaccine could be available. As such, um, those timelines are a little unpredictable. You know, we have prior precedent with the adults, roughly about um, four to a little bit longer than that. I think for the adolescents, it was uh, closer to five weeks. Um, So I think we could see somewhere in that range. But again, FDA has the prerogative to request additional data on um, study participants or to follow them for a longer period of time before making a decision. And so it's a little speculative to really get too definitive about timelines at this stage. As mentioned, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration will now begin a what they call a regulatory review. In related COVID-19 news, Brunswick, Georgia, is the latest city government offering its employees 500 bucks to get vaccinated. According to the Brunswick News, the city is using federal money to pay out the bonus, which will also go to employees who already received the shots. Officials say only 46 percent of the city employees in Brunswick are vaccinated and there have been 15 cases of COVID among the staff. Now, Doraville and Lawrenceville are among the handful of Georgia cities also using bonuses to encourage employee vaccinations. Other cities are considering mandates or non-monetary incentives like extra days off. I imagine most people would like the cash. In other news, Georgia's restrictive abortion law is back in court this week. State officials are hoping to overturn a previous ruling from a federal court that blocked the measure. The state's so-called heartbeat law outlaws most abortions once fetal cardiac activity can be detected. It's a lot to say. That's often at about six weeks before many people even know they're pregnant. And after putting it on a temporary basis, a federal judge permanently blocked the law from taking effect last summer. 
Now, in his ruling, U.S. District Judge Steve Jones, this was back in October of 2019, ruled Georgia's law violated the abortion protections laid out in Roe v. Wade. But state leaders, including Governor Brian Kemp, well, they filed a motion to appeal that decision. The first hearing in that case is set for this Friday morning in a federal appeals court here in Atlanta. And finally, it does appear NFL quarterback Tom Brady will play until he's 90. Four-man rush. Brady going end zone. It is caught for the touchdown by Godwin. Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers beat the Atlanta Falcons yesterday 48-25. And so the Falcons are now 0-2 on the new season following that loss. Falcons first-year head coach Arthur Smith says he's cool. So you go on the road like this against a really good veteran team, and we, our guys kept swinging. It's unfortunate with the what happened at the end. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll go in there and we'll watch the tape and we'll keep, keep moving forward and correct things. Next up, the Falcons by the Giants in New York on Sunday. Hang in there, Falcons. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Close Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Yes, it's coming up. November 2nd, the city of Atlanta municipal general elections will be held. Of course, the big race is the mayoral contest, but city council seats, the Atlanta Board of Education seats, and city council presidents, well, they're ones to watch as well. Now, Atlanta's governmental structure has gone through some changes throughout the last century. In fact, there was a time when the city had a board of aldermen, that's what they were called, and there was a vice mayor that presided. In fact, Maynard Jackson was elected Atlanta's first black vice mayor back in 1969. Soon, there was a new charter that was passed, and so a former city government with the mayor having greater power would be formed, along with city council seats and a council president. Well, this week, we began our series of conversations with those candidates vying to become Atlanta's next city council president. And in no particular order, it's solely based on the scheduling availability of the candidates. Up first, he's a political newcomer. But not new to Atlanta's philanthropic community, Doug Shipman was the first CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights and also served as the president CEO for the Woodruff Arts Center. And, of course, Shipman has been a guest on this program several times as a scholar of Dr. Martin Luther King and his writings. Doug Shipman, welcome. Thanks, Rose. It's always good to be here. Glad to be back. I refer to you as a political newcomer. Why now? Why now seeking an elected office? You know, I think we're at a a pivotal crossroads in Atlanta. We came into COVID uh, with 25% poverty, but we also came into COVID with an enormous amount of economic growth, Microsoft moving here, Google moving here, people moving here. And so I think that we really are at a moment where we can keep growing in the same ways, which are stressing our infrastructure, stressing our affordability, or we can take this moment as we come out of COVID and really try 
to focus on those intractable problems with some fresh ideas. And I felt like that my unique background in the private sector and the nonprofit sector, which you mentioned, of bringing a lot of people together to do those big sorts of things was exactly the kind of moment. And city council president, as I'm sure we'll discuss, is a consensus builder. That's that's the role it has to play. And that really felt like it matched with my skills. You mentioned pivotal crossroads. Hasn't Atlanta been at these crossroads for a long time? What's different about in now? some in some ways we have been at these crossroads before. Um, I think what's pivotal now is that one, we see a real a movement to Atlanta because of our diverse workforce. We see companies wanting to come here because Atlanta offers something quite unique. We've also seen incredible uh, investments in our educational institutions. Even most recently, our HBCUs have gotten incredible philanthropy over the last year or two. And so I think that this is, we have we are facing some of the same problems that we have faced for a couple of generations, but I think the forces that are at work are different. And I think the opportunities that we have to actually address them are unique because of that, the growth that we're going uh, through right now. What forces are at work and are they good or bad or in the middle? Well, I think there's a little bit of both. I mean, uh, we've got a lot of folks wanting to move into urban areas. So the cities are more attractive than they ever have been. That's a positive. Our diverse workforce, which I mentioned, is a real positive. I think that we have, um, we have in Atlanta put growth ahead of almost every other factor. If we're getting more jobs and we're getting more companies, we think we're winning. But that has basically allowed 25% poverty to remain. That has uh, allowed affordability to continue to be an incredible struggle. We have not invested in our infrastructure or in our transit in ways that you would have expected from a city of our size and scale. And so I think I think some of those factors that we face right now are positives. And if we direct them, we can actually make progress. But I think some of those challenges are ones that if we don't address some of these issues, another that I would say is sustainability, then we face a future that is going to be very difficult for us to manage through. You feel you can do that as Atlanta City Council president because you sound like someone who might have been running for mayor. Well, I think at this moment we need we're going to have a new mayor, a new city council president and several new council members just because of who is running and not running. So I think we need leaders in all of those positions who have a view for what Atlanta should be, which to me is an Atlanta that is inclusive of all of our neighborhoods, that uh, defines success to make sure that we're not leaving folks behind. And I think as city council president, one is to make sure that the city council itself is doing its job effectively, oversight, transparency, good budgeting, good policy making, good community involvement. And then also, I think the city council president at its best can work with a mayor to engage communities, to engage the philanthropic sector and the private sector also to help. So to me, it's a it's an all hands on deck moment the key, uh, for the city. Well, the key there, it sounds like, as you just said, that the Atlanta city council president being able to work with the mayor. It's been no secret that that has not happened uh, these last few administrations. I think one could argue that the, they've been adversarial in terms of. Folks not getting along. Folks even saying, look, I don't I asked for a meeting with the mayor and not just with Mayor Bottoms administration. We heard these concerns with the Reed administration. I can't get we can't see the mayor. We only see the mayor when there's an issue. So how do you propose if you were city council president to break that? 
Yeah, I think the relationship between city council president and mayor is a crucial one. Uh, I know all of the uh, major candidates, um, the leading candidates for mayor. I have worked with several of them in my various roles. Obviously, the Center for Civil and Human Rights started under Mayor Franklin. It ended under Mayor Reed. I've worked with Council Member Dickens. I've worked with um, Council President Moore. So I have a personal relationship with, uh, with them to pull on. I think also my style is to um, basically my first step, if there is an issue, is to go to them directly. It's not to go to Twitter. It's not to go to the radio. My my uh, approach would be you're going to be the first one to hear concerns that I have. Let's see if we can work them out. And that's not to keep things behind closed doors. But I've been a CEO three times. I know what it feels like when, you know, it's very helpful when somebody comes to you and say, you may not realize or let me put this on your radar. So I would try to build that relationship in that way. And also to do it in a way that is um, very much based on data. I think that instead of, of making it about politics, we need to make it more so about what is the data showing us? Are we spending this money effectively? What are communities saying? Are we picking up the trash? Those very, very tactical things. I've said as I've campaigned, I think that we need a mayor and a city council president, and city council folks that are very, very tactically oriented right now. I think the problems we face are a lot about operations and are a lot about how we're doing things in the city. And I hope that the next mayor, and I know I will be focused on that, and I hope the next mayor is too. Part of your campaigning, though, has been centered around building a better Atlanta. And you mentioned having you know all neighborhoods be inclusive. But when you have a neighborhood like Buckhead that does not want to be a part of the city of Atlanta, at least for some of them, what's your stance on that? Do you support their move or their desire to move out of the city of Atlanta? I don't think that a Buckhead city is going to solve the problems that Buckhead residents have raised. Um, I think that in addition, as I've moved around the city, the issues I hear in Buckhead are exactly the same issues that are raised when I go to Southwest Atlanta, when I go to Southeast Atlanta, when I go to the West side. And that's a unique moment. Sometimes in our city, we have different parts of the city with very different issues. I think the city very much has the same issues. There are issues of public safety, there are issues of services, there are issues of infrastructure. Homelessness is an issue that comes up quite often. So I think that one, we have a consensus about what we need to tackle. Two, I think that, that the way that we serve Buckhead and Buckhead is best served by being part of the whole. When we go out to try to win business, when we go out to try to win federal grants, we are much stronger when the entire city is coming together and the city that we have is pursuing those things. And finally, I think that, you know, a lot of the the uh, the economics that have been raised, I don't know if the economics would actually be that strong. Buckhead is just like Atlanta. Every day, a lot more people come to Buckhead than live there. A lot more people come to Atlanta than live here. Mm -hmm. We have to serve tourists and we have to serve um, uh, guests and we have to serve workers who don't live in the city limits. And I think when you have that kind of city, Atlanta's always faced that challenge because we're a relatively small city in a huge metro. You're better as a, as a municipality actually being bigger than being smaller. Well, you're not the first person to say that, but it appears that for a growing percentage of folks in Buckhead, that's not enough. So when we talk about equity and we talk about how do we address public safety throughout the entire city, how do you balance these folks that want to move out or, or have their own police department? And also there are other neighborhoods that say, look, we've been dealing with crime, too. You know, how do you bring everybody together? And how do you how would you propose to do that? I think there's a couple of pieces to that. One is, you know, my my history of working on, you know, um, big projects and 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 sometimes tough issues 
is to go towards them, not to pull away from them. So the first thing I would do is to go into, uh, you know, conversations with folks from Buckhead, but also bring folks from other parts of the city and say, what's going on? Let's find out exactly what the concerns are. And then let's start to come up with a common agenda. I think the new mayor, the new city council president and the new council will have a limited amount of time in which to tackle these issues. I think the next year is gonna be crucial in order to show real progress. And what does real progress look like? It looks like better services. It looks like hiring more police officers so we're fully staffed. I think it also means hiring uh, skill sets within the police department that include mental health and substance abuse because we know a lot of issues of our citizens are around those issues. And I think we've got to show tangible progress, not only for Buckhead, but for the whole city. Does it include a new police chief? Um, that That is up to the mayor's call. I know that the but would you support uh, that, candidates... Though? Would I support a new police chief? I would support the search um, for I, new. Let me back up then to be fair. Do sure. you think then there should be a search for a new police chief, no matter who's mayor? I don't I don't have a strong opinion on that yet. Um, I would want to see the metrics for um, how the police are performing and how the police chief is performing. And I'd want to have that conversation with the mayor to get their perspective on it, since ultimately they're the ones that that are the ones that have to oversee the police chief. But the support of the council would be helpful for the sake of the community at whole, right? I think, sure. But I think that that's a, the initially that recommendation should come from the mayor because they're going to have to manage that person on a day to day basis. If you just join us, I'm in conversation with Doug Shipman. He's one of five candidates vying to be Atlanta's next city council president as we begin our own one on one conversations um, with the candidates. Let's then talk. Let's move from public safety. Then let's talk about well, one, one of my favorite subjects that we always talk about. That is housing. Affordable housing. I think I've asked this question before. Where is affordable housing in Atlanta? I don't know if you have the answer to that, but through your lens right now, Doug, is this city on the verge of of becoming a city that really just does not have any adequate affordable housing and a a, a number of affordable housing areas for people? So, So we have seen over the last decade or so an incredible growth in population and at all price points, we have not built enough housing. We simply are short supply. And that means housing prices for every price point have gone up, which especially impacts affordability because you have folks basically coming into neighborhoods and saying, well, that's what I can buy and I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna tear it down or I'm gonna add on to it or whatever the case may be. So one is we've got to we've got to find ways in which to grow our overall affordability. Two. We have an Atlanta Housing Authority. They have not been making. They have not been building very much over the last few years. We have to change that. That is the number one way in which the city can bring affordability forward. Three, we are now ten years, a little bit more, from the last Great Recession. Mm-hmm. A lot of our tax incentives are ten-year incentives. That means that right now we're seeing a lot of those affordable units now come on the market as market rate. We need to work with the state to enable us to do much longer 20 and 30 year tax uh, incentives and ask them for more affordability, either deeper affordability, which means it's even more affordable or more units. And then finally, I'd say that, you know, there are there have been issues raised. We do have a lot of property at the city that I think we should be using for development. We have hundreds of acres. We need to make sure that that's coming online. And we also need to make sure that in all of this, that um, uh, displacement is at the top of the agenda. As I move around the city, that is the number one thing that every neighborhood says. Our legacy residents, the ones who have built this neighborhood should not be displaced. 
there are different ways to, t to tackle that, whether it's owners or renters, but I think we need to attack it on both sides to make sure that folks aren't displaced. Well, let's, let's tackle that. Let's get into that because development is also part of this been following i'm sure you know what's going to happen with mall west end we know Mark mm -hmm. microsoft is coming in you look at what's happening around the au center the problem as it appears doug is that when developers come in and and, and let's use mall west end as an example because whomever buys that yes they have every right to do what they want but also they're going to seek incentives from the city right and often that can make or break or deal so do you think there needs to be some type of overhaul? Because what happens is that developers come in and they make promises, but it's not binding to the community. Right. Right. So I think when, when we're putting public dollars in, I think that we need to have uh, commitments around affordability and sustainability. Because to me, those are the two things that especially a new development can tackle up front. But if you don't get it tackled up front, it's not going to happen later on. I think the other thing is, you know, the early on, the Beltline did a great job, this is early on, did a great job buying land for parks, but did not buy land for affordability. We've seen the Beltline start to do that. Mm -hmm. Land trusts where other entities, whether it be governmental entities or nonprofit entities, buy up big tracts of land and then create affordable um, development on top of it, I think is key. And whether it's the Microsoft development or whether it's West End, we need, our, we need to support and grow our land bank approach because when you control the land, through an affordability me uh, mechanism, you actually can keep it more affordable. And so I think we've got to be much more aggressive. We know where some of the growth is going to be. We have to be much more aggressive in, in those investments up front. But should those developers, should the city of Atlanta, before they offer all these great tax incentives or whatever they're going to give them, should they also say, look, you have to have something, you need to have a binding agreement with yes. the community. You support yes. that. I do. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I think that, that that is more than a fair trade to say, look, we're going to make investments, but here are the requirements for those investments from the greater community perspective. Let's talk about leadership for a moment, Doug. How do you define your leadership style? First, you're someone who's new to politics and you want not only just city residents to vote you as an Atlanta City Council president, but also presiding over or, or as you mentioned, being this this core for a new city council, which would be, in, in, for what it's worth, it'd be pretty pretty green. I mean, there'd be some veterans left, not a whole lot. But y'all going to be young, whether you're elected or not. When I say young in terms of, you know, experience. I appreciate you calling me young. In, you. in experience. I know you're old, man. <laughs> so, you know, I have, a, I have a graduate degree in public policy. I've worked on Capitol Hill. I've worked in campaigns, obviously, um, through my various nonprofit efforts. I've worked closely with city council members and with mayoral administrations. I think that my leadership style, one, is to have relationships before you need them. I develop deep relationships with the civil rights leaders, with um, civil rights um, foot soldiers, with the philanthropic community long before we actually built the Center for Civil and Human Rights. I would do the same thing as city council president. Someone also said to me that the city council president ought to be a gap filler of information, ought to be constantly moving around and then helping other city council folks understand what's happening. I would absolutely be doing that. And then I would also be bringing new folks to the table, you know, whether it is, you know, younger folks who I've mentored over time, whether it's members of our AAPI community, our Latino community, um, or newcomers to Atlanta, I would want to be a city council president making sure they have a way into the city and into decision-making processes. That would be my style. When you say bring in 
new folks into decision making. At the end of the day, though, too, it may fall on the vote of the full council or in this case, the mayor giving it a thumbs up or not. So how do you plan to How do you plan to maneuver through all of that? So uh, I've had conversations with a lot of the former city council presidents. Um, they have talked about the importance of um, being very, very um, open about what data and metrics are being used. They've given a lot of great advice about how often a city council president should meet with council members, with committee chairs, um, with advisory boards, um, with the mayor, but not all, all, only with the mayor, but also department heads and making sure that there's very good communication between department heads and city council, because a lot of the work gets done between CFO or head of watershed management and those respective committees. And so to me, it would be forming those relationships up front and then being very consistent and very open about what data are we using and what are the issues that we're hearing coming up from constituents? Because ultimately the council and the council president ought to be the way that the citizens can you know, participate within the greater decision-making. We are the representatives of the citizens directly. And how do you then also propose that you make sure that there's transparency in all that? Because that's been a problem. And as far as mm -hmm. I know, uh, the last administration is still under some type of investigation. How do you propose to make sure that transparency is key, that if there's going to be a probe, there should probably be an outside entity doing this type of investigation or what if that comes if it needs to happen, how do you propose so to do one, that? So one is we need to make sure that we can actually use the data we have. The open checkbook system, which allows us to see all the transactions is great, but we actually need more tools to analyze that so that citizens and city council folks can analyze it. Two, somebody made the suggestion, who's the former city council president, that I should be the explainer in chief and that I should have an infographic specialist, which is somebody who makes very complicated data into easy to understand pictures and charts. I think that's exactly right. I would take very seriously being someone who can explain why things are happening and taking what seemingly are very complex things and making them simple. And then third, you know, coming from the experiences that I've had, you have to be very consistent and rigorous about process. You can't make exceptions to the process approaches. You've got to say, look, even if it's the mayor, even if it's the head of a department, even if it's a city council person, we're going to go through a certain process so that there's trust in the process. I think we have seen when process breaks down and we make an exception or we, we don't follow that process, then everybody questions whether or not it's been fair and transparent. And so I would be very, very rigorous about making sure that if that's what it says, then that's the way that we're going to follow it. Um, because I think that builds trust over time in all directions. And finally, going back to that campaign message that you have about building a better Atlanta, what is your hope that that looks like within the next with this next administration? It won't happen overnight, obviously, but through your lens, what does building a better Atlanta look like? I think one, the city's basic functions have to work better. We have to spend the money that we've gotten from the federal government or transit dollars that we've passed. We've got to pay, the city's got to pay its bills on time. We're hurting our small businesses when we're making them wait six months or more to get their bills paid. We got to be able to pick up, you know, yard trimmings, pick up trash. We've got to do those basic things because it is such a detriment to our citizens. And then we've got to be able to do the bigger things. We've got to be able to hire and train enough fire and rescue folks and enough police folks. We've got to be able to retain them. And we've got to look out on the horizon and make sure that the investments we're making, whether they be incentives, 
or whether they be to entrepreneurs or whether they be to in, in infrastructure, that those are building a city that allows everybody to participate and build the kind of life they want and that allows us to respond to what we know are going to be incredible pressures around growth and sustainability. And I think that, that that's what we have to do. We have to build the city that 25 years from now, we say we took this moment and we tackled those those issues. And that's a city with less poverty and that's a city with more sustainability and it's a city that just frankly works better. And folks holding you accountable, some city council presidents have always made themselves available to the community with whether it's you know, weekly or monthly coffee chats or whatever. You can't use coffee conversations because that's mine. <laughs> I'll be stealing stuff, Doug. But you you would want to be that type of city council president to make yourself available. And also folks holding you accountable, not running if Absolutely. people have an issue and they call you out on it. No, I'm, and I think my history shows that, um, you know, building the Center for Civil and Human Rights, lots of people had lots of ideas and questions I happily give out my cell phone. I happily give out my email. My email is doug at dougshippen.com. People can send me an email. I respond to folks on Twitter. I mean, I, I am that kind of leader because I think that fundamentally I have found people really want this city to work, but they feel frustrated right now that they're not getting a lot of responsiveness. And so I would want to be quite responsive. Atlanta City Council President Candidate Doug Shipman. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. This begins our one-on-ones with all the candidates. And we'll hopefully we'll have one or two more this week. But hang with us. We'll get to everyone who answers our responses. So don't send me an email talking about you haven't heard your candidate. Doug, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Appreciate it. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. John Haber is CEO and president of Spend Management Experts. And he's been our go-to regarding the latest news with, with the global supply chain. And whenever we talk about the current state of the supply chain, I feel as if we leave you, the listeners, with a gloom and doom outlook. Well, today will not be any different. Or will it? John, welcome back to the program. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> you sound very happy, John. Let me tell you something. The, hey. head, the headlines tell the story, and I took these right from today. Supply chain problems may foil, foil your holiday shopping. You can buy stuff online, but getting it is another story. The supply chain is messed up. Start holiday shopping, and I love this one. Retailers fight supply chain woes pre-holiday. Truth in all of that. Yes. It no. paints a it paints a pretty bleak picture there. Uh, I can tell you, unfortunately, there's truth in all of it. There are over 70 ocean vessels uh, parked outside the ports in L.A. and Long Beach. Fifty percent of uh, imports coming in from Asia go into those ports. Uh, it's uh, you know four weeks ago. There were 40 ships parked out there. Now there's over 70. Uh, it's not a pretty picture right now, Rose. I spoke to uh, someone who works in, in steel fabrication, and I asked him how it was going. And this is what he said. He said, it's a mess. 
He said, you know, it used to take sometimes three weeks to get something. Now it's taking three months. But then he said, Rose, added to that is, as you mentioned, the ports that even trying to get something through customs could take an additional two to three weeks. John Haber, what is the problem exactly? You've had COVID issues in Asia that have shut down manufacturing, which is causing delays uh, on the manufacturing side. You've got uh, employment problems as well with workers in the fulfillment centers uh, uh, being able to pick, pack, and, and ship the goods. That's creating inventory bottlenecks. There's a shortage of containers that is also creating problems. And then when it finally gets here, now all the freight's coming in uh, kind of at the same time that we can't, we can't unload it. There's uh, none of drivers to pull the containers out of the ports. There's just not enough staffing. Uh, the staffing numbers are, are crazy. When you look at how many people, Amazon's trying to hire 120,000 workers, UPS 100,000. FedEx 90,000, the post office 50,000. There simply are not enough workers uh, to, f- to fill all these jobs. And you're seeing, you know, just the bottleneck of the supply chain, unfortunately. You mentioned the shipping containers because I, I read something where that the cost of a 40-foot container has soared 659% to $13,000 plus for a container. Those containers uh, in typical times, uh, sometimes they'd be $3,000, $4,000. I mean, sometimes less than that. You've got people paying, you know, $12,000 to $15,000 for that container. Uh, And that just goes, I mean, unless you're changing uh, the cost of what you're selling those goods for, you're eating that cost. That's eating right into the profit margins. And it's a real issue uh, for a lot of retailers that are are still struggling. Well, you mentioned uh, China because also I'm hearing from a lot of small business owners or not so small business owners just say, look, we are awaiting also products or parts from China as well. Some that might just be sitting somewhere out in the ocean somewhere, just just chilling, just sitting because they're not moving at all. How do you get this started? Is it simply by just you need to hire more people? I mean, if you look at it from, okay, locally, we need more truck drivers. There's a shortage of truck drivers. Okay, well, in order for the truck drivers to get the products, well, the products aren't even at the port. Well, why aren't the products at the port? Because the products are out in the ocean. Or if they're out in the ocean because they haven't even come from somewhere else. That's a backlog. Yeah, there's no silver bullet. Uh, We need to make progress. Uh, in all of the areas. Uh, We need to hire more people. Uh, We need the Delta variant to go away. (laughs) It's okay. Well, (laughs) that may not happen tomorrow, John. (laughs) I know. But, uh, I mean, the Delta variant is the the Delta, the the COVID is the the center of the universe here. Uh, Things started to get much better. The variant popped up. And now we're seeing the same type of problems we were seeing in the supply chain last year creep back up. Is it possible that we might see an increase in moving products maybe by plane instead of boat, or is that just not feasible? 
it's not really feasible from an economic standpoint, it, even at the inflated prices of, uh, of ocean freight, it's still much more expensive uh, for air freight. There's not an endless capacity on air freight either. Uh, the One of the solutions is to uh, start manufacturing more goods in the U.S. so we don't need to import them. Well, we've been hearing that from everyone who runs for president of the United States the last, what, 50 <laughs> years, uh, but that hasn't happened. So let's move on from that because that's not going to happen overnight as well. You mentioned then let's let's focus on holiday shopping here because even if folks say, OK, I'm listening to Rose and John, I'm going to go online right now and buy everybody's holiday gifts. Uh, you still got to wait maybe six to eight weeks for delivery just because you got the confirmation that's saying, hey, your order has been received, you still may have to wait an additional six to eight weeks for delivery. You may, you may very well have to wait six to eight weeks for delivery, depending on what you're ordering. That's why it's so critical to order early, more so this year than ever before. Uh, order early, it's the inventory is a problem just as much as the transportation, because if the inventory is sitting on a boat off the coast, Nobody can get to that inventory. Uh, we, Like I said, we tried to order a bed for my daughter uh, from a large retailer. That was a nine-month backlog, and so that's not that's not even available. John, did uh, she have a bed? You did have a bed for her, right? You, you, you had a child sleeping she's, on the floor, right? We, 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 we found another <laughs> source, Rose. <laughs> um, let's talk, because last time you were here, and you even said that in logistics and in the work that you all do, that labor was an issue and you actually took resumes that folks sent to me. I'm not going to ask if you hired any of them. That's none of my business, but are you still, are we still seeing a labor shortage in areas and all of this with logistics from it? And I mentioned truck drivers, are we still seeing a labor shortage in these areas? Uh, I did uh, forward on a lot of resumes and thank you very much uh, for sending those. And if anybody uh, is listening today, uh, and is looking for employment. We're still hiring across all sectors. All everything that I told you we were looking, we're still looking. The reality is, uh, there are ten thousand open jobs right now. There's only nine thousand. I mean, ten million open jobs. There's only nine million unemployed people or people that are looking for employment. So there's more jobs than there are people unemployed. The question is, are they the right jobs? There's a lot mm-hmm. of people that are not going back to the workforce. Uh, they're staying at home with the kids. Uh, they're maybe in you know areas where schools are not fully back opened, or we simply don't have the skill sets mm-hmm. uh, in order to fill these jobs. There's a lot of jobs where they're just not as attractive. And with drivers, uh, there are regulations that are going in, and there's drug testing, and there's a lot of other factors that w- determine whether or not you can qualify for those positions. Well, okay, that that being the case, so now we've talked about everything from, okay, the labor shortage. We've talked about China. We've talked about ports. We've talked about a backlog here. And you've given your assessment as to how all of this could or or will change, hopefully. But for global manufacturers right now and with this disruption from whether it's COVID-19 or what have you, going into 2020, 2022, John, 
what is the outlook? How do you, are we going to be having the same conversation? Because I feel like, and I was telling the truth, every time you and I talk about this, I feel like I'm depressing folks because there's never good news about the global supply chain. Are we ever, when do we get into this post-pandemic world of the supply chain returning somewhat back to its normal climate? A lot of that factors on to the what happens with the, the Delta variant. I mean, that is driving things. We're moving in the right direction. There's still a lack of capacity, though, <clears throat> especially in the U.S., on the trucking and trucking in general. Uh, in small parcel, uh, there's not enough capacity, UPS and FedEx. There's anywhere estimated between four and four and seven million packages uh, that they don't have, that there's not enough capacity for on a daily basis to be delivered. And so, uh, there's a lot of logistics providers that are quickly trying to enter that market. FedEx is building out capacity. USPS is building out capacity, but you cannot build out capacity overnight. Uh, we don't see, I don't see it improving uh, in, the for, uh, in the remainder of this year or potentially even in the first quarter. Uh, I think that we'll get a better idea as things progress, but we don't see the problems in the supply chain improving in the short term, in the next six months. In the next six months, John? No. Huh. So we just continue to have this backlog, and whether you're ordering a bed for your beautiful little girl or you want to get Rose Scott a pair of nice groovy boots from Finland, I don't know, I just said that. Uh, we just all going to have to wait. Uh, yes, especially if you wait, if you are... If you don't uh, start your shopping sooner rather than later, it's the the longer you wait, the riskier it is. And then so, what, what impact does that have on those companies that and we've seen some here in Georgia who have had to either stop their hiring wave or they're not even in production because of particularly with China, those products, those microchips or whatever they are that obviously is slow because of the virus in China. I mean, it just it just we're just in a stagnant here. I mean, I know it seems like I'm asking the same question, but I feel like, John, it's just, we just, we all just chill and wait for this thing to subside. Is that, is that it? I wish I had a better uh, solution. I wish you did too, John. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the risk management uh, strategies that a lot of organizations just simply did not have the right risk management strategies in place uh, within the supply chain. And unfortunately, a lot of this stuff cannot be fixed overnight. You can't just uh, move manufacturing from Asia sure. uh, to Atlanta. You can't do that overnight. People are working on uh, contingency plans and they're looking at different solutions, but it takes a while to fix the supply chain. And uh, it's we're seeing we're seeing how how unprepared we really have we, we really we really are for a global pandemic well you follow this is there any solution that might appear like it could work and at least decrease in this backlog that we've been talking about since goodness john maybe last year uh there there are some emergency measures that are being put into place especially in the west coast ports where they're extending the hours that uh they're operating so hopefully they can offload more of the freight and get remove the backlog. Uh, so it's going to be it's going to require more hours, more uh, people. 
uh, and you know, you're going to have to ramp up the staffing. You need the drivers to get the stuff out of the ports. You need the workers to offload the freight. So you, the only way to do that is to get more people and, uh, and have them work more hours because it's, you can't uh, just flip a switch and press the easy button. The stuff has to be offloaded. It's got to be moved. That requires people to do that. So that's the best thing that can uh, help in the in the short term. Meanwhile, how are you all over at Spin Management Experts? How are you all doing through all of this? Uh, we're very, very busy. I was at a, at a show in Washington, D.C., the largest parcel show in the U.S., and people are all facing the same challenges. <clears throat> there are no silver bullets. Uh, so we are really helping try and secure capacity for our customers. Uh, we're working on very creative operational solutions uh, to try and make sure that they're managing their inventory correctly, placing it in the right parts so they don't have to double ship, ship it. But it's a very challenging time uh, for our clients. And we're spending uh, a lot of time really not trying to help them necessarily save money, mm -hmm. helping them get the goods into the U.S. and get them to the customers. So who is the person in charge of the creative operational solutions? Is that one person or is that a team or no. is that you? <laughs> we, have a te uh, we have dedicated teams that come up with creative solutions depending. <laughs> have on they? Their needs. Yes, in many cases, we have come up with very creative solutions. Like what, John? What y'all got? Uh, we, uh, we've come up with all different types of carriers and capacity for them outside of using UPS. Uh, if they were dependent on UPS, we have them using regional carriers and postal consolidators to help with overflow volume. UPS and FedEx are putting volume caps on customers. They're simply not going to pick the freight up. We have been... Uh, very, very urgently working with anybody that we know that can move the freight and deliver it based on their brand promise. And so we're spending a tremendous amount of time securing capacity for our customers. Wow. Well, John, I hope the next time we have this conversation, I mean, who am I kidding? John Haber, CEO and president of Spin Management Experts. And of course, he's been our go-to regarding the latest news with the global supply chain. Uh, listener wants to know, did you finally get the bed for your little girl? They pay attention, don't they? We've got we've got the bed. And tell her she has to sleep in that bed till she's twenty five, because that'll be the next time that you all be able to get one to her. John, thanks That's so right. John, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. And that's it for this edition of Closer Look. And I, I just threw out their boots from Finland, so don't email me. But anyway, a reminder to let us know your thoughts on today's program or any other. Send me an email, rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, it's always online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. And stay tuned to 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott.
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.